0: As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation member, FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
1: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.
2: It can be
3: hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Head of Global Fundamental Fixed Income Strategy at BlackRock. Long ago and far away, she was head of Global Fundamental Strategy for the Bank of England. We're thrilled that she could join us uh, this morning. You have been in the halls of the Bank of England. Mm -hmm. How do you distill the chaos in England and also at their central bank?
5: Well, I think it's a combination of, um, obviously, the high inflation, uh, the Bank of England raising rates, then the new government and the very poor communication around the the mini budget that they announced and i think that really completely took investors unawares um, there was no sign of how um, you know they were going to cut you know cut expenditure along with mm-hmm. the cut in taxation and i think it just added you know on top of brexit on top of you know the deep Um, you know issues we're seeing in terms of economic activity in the UK um, I think it just created you know a lot of um, you know carnage essentially in the gilt market for a time.
6: Big time. Tom when you learn to ride a bicycle in the US they're called stabilisers? Yeah, we what call, you call them training wheels. Training wheels. We training call them stabilisers in the UK. Yeah, just so if one knows what I'm about to say. <laughs> <laughs> Is this bond market going to struggle without stabilisers, like the Bank of England gilt market operation when it expires in the middle of October?
5: So I, th- I think the Bank of England have already signalled, you know, with the uh, temporary you know, measures that they announced, I think the bank of england is keenly aware that they want to keep the market stable so they may in fact need to do a little bit more i think at the moment they're sort of treading a very fine line the bank of england you know have a very very measured approach to monetary policy every step that they take you know is very very finely nuanced they assume essentially any tweaks that they make to the monetary policy won't be seen the full effects until at least 18 months out. So they're trying to adjust policy for a longer term trajectory. And yet they're dealing with a very volatile market right now. So I think the Bank of England is obviously incredibly keenly watching what's happening. And I think they will be prepared to do more if they do feel the need to keep you know, the the market's stable. But I think it's also a global phenomenon. I mean, we've seen volatility across all asset markets. We're seeing it across, you know, all, all sovereign bond markets. So we're seeing, you know, volatility here in the US. We're seeing it in Europe and elsewhere as well. So it's not just a UK phenomenon, but I do think in light of the fact that, you know, we have issues that are global in terms of activity, issues specific to the UK, and then the fact that many central banks are obviously draining liquidity from the system at a time when inflation is is high. I think think it's just a confluence of many things and it's being exacerbated in the UK.
3: Which raises this issue of stabilizers or training wheels for (laughs) other central banks in terms of quantitative easing, not quantitative tightening. Are you expecting a lot of central banks to fail at their attempts of quantitative tightening and end up actually having to buy bonds selectively on the long end to try to control some of the moves that they're seeing?
5: Yeah, so... That's a, I think it's a very good question. And I think it. It. we've never been in this environment before, where we have had so many central banks that came away from positions of such loose monetary policy. They've had these massive bank balance sheets, they had these huge QE programs, rates have been incredibly loose. And we've never had a starting position where they're starting to tighten, you know, from these incredibly low levels, given how high inflation is as well. And so I think it does remain to be seen. I think here in the us i think the path is pretty well laid out in terms of qt it's already in progress i think in the uk and also maybe in europe as well it remains to be seen i think in you know in europe we do expect in the ecb to continue to raise rates the next two meetings but in terms of reducing its overall you know uh, bank balance and in terms of qt it's still a little bit unknown when you have the asset purchase program on the one hand, you have the PEP program on the other hand, and it's a fine balance that they are trying to you know, juggle. Yeah, you know.
3: Well, right now, there's a lot of discussion about our star star. I'm not going to get into the jargon. I don't want to do that. It's sort of, I know, I feel everyone just rolling their eyes as I say I, that. I
6: wasn't. I was smiling. But, Tom's yeah. furious.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I am curious whether you have in your mind a level at which longer term yields could rise before the financial stability risks become more pressing than the inflation
5: ones? I think it's not just the level to which they rise. It's also the speed with which they do that. And so we don't have a certain level that we're currently looking at where we think we'll be overly concerned. And we don't think they're going to Get to extreme levels, but we do think if the volatility increases and you see a dramatic shift, either because um, you know the the economy um, you know is much worse than we expect, or you know because of other factors we don't know. But I think half of it is actually the speed and also how the curve reacts. It's not just the, f- the end endpoint.
6: Marilyn, just final question. Just take a step back from all of this. Can you tell us how much the world has changed for you, Rick, for Bob, for the whole of the team? with rates where they are now and are you looking at this world as maybe something that we have to live with for a while, that Fed funds, the risk-free asset sticks around 350 to 4% and Mm. credit is hanging out at these levels?
5: That's right. I mean, the world has changed completely from a year ago, three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. But actually, it gives us a lot more optimism now in terms of fixed income actually giving you a decent yield. I mean, obviously, we're relatively cautious in this environment, but fixed income now is really, I think, you know, a very decent, good asset class. Once again, you can get the decent return with little risk at the moment if you're in the front end with low duration. So I think for the long term and going into next year, then I think there are a huge number of opportunities in fixed income that we haven't seen for such a long time. So I think in terms of you know, the, the team and fixed income investors in general, yeah. um, I think this is a far better environment going forward than we've seen for such a long time. Do
6: you think we can break out into this? environment, a new equilibrium, a new normal on a sustainable basis? Do you get the feeling we can? We get a ton of pushback around the table that we just can't live with these levels of interest rates. Do you think we
5: can? Well, we've we've seen it in the past. We've certainly seen interest rates much higher than this in the past. And I certainly think we can live with interest rates being much higher. Um, And I think to a certain extent, to get back to a healthy financial environment, you know, I think to have rates a little bit higher, I think, you know, is beneficial for a lot of different businesses. So um, I think it's certainly possible to get to a sustainable level that's beneficial for the economy. The world right? has
6: changed, that's for sure. Yes. Marilyn, thank you. Also awesome to catch up. Marilyn Watson of BlackRock.
4: Stephen Shork, he's principal at the Shork Group. We protect the copyright of all our guests get his magnificent statement on the American distillate and oil economy from the short group. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. The simple question is, what does OPEC plus mean to a gallon of gas? But far more than that is the nuance. How does OPEC plus's decision impinge on the
2: many distillates that we take from a barrel of oil? yeah absolutely OPEC's only influence over the market tom is the price of crude oil by by constricting the production or increasing the production thereof so obviously with the move they've made now or the announcement they made yesterday of taking two million barrels off the market clearly we're looking at um, uh, fewer barrels on the market as we go into the fourth quarter now i want to be clear here Uh, OPEC made the announcement of the two-million-barrel cut, but OPEC is already, it's 13 members, and I want to add four of which are in sub-Saharan Africa are struggling to maintain their current quotas. So by announcing a two million barrel cut given what OPEC is actually putting onto the market now the cut will amount to only seven hundred and fifty to eight hundred thousand barrels a day which is still not an insignificant number and therefore it has the potential for an impact on oil prices. Now, we don't consume oil, right? We consume the derivatives of oil, gasoline, jet fuel, diesel fuel, so forth. Uh, What we've seen here now, to answer your question, Tom, on the U.S. East Coast is our refinery capacity has been slashed by more than half over the past 10 years. We simply don't have the ability to turn what crude oil there is out there into what we need, into everything we need. Now, Thomas Sal. Uh, statement on economics is scarcity. We cannot produce everything that everybody wants. That is the current situation when it comes to oil derivatives. We are producing what most people want the most, that is gasoline. And therefore, the, what refining capacity we do have left here in New York is geared towards ma- maximizing gasoline production. The other derivatives, i.e. heating oil, which is also diesel fuel, jet fuel, that suffers. So as we look ahead to this heating season, 70 percent of the homes in this country that heat their homes with oil are located in the mid-Atlantic New England states. We are going into this winter with a thimble full of heating oil. We do not have. It is a dire situation. We're going to this winter. We don't have enough supply. It is going to be a very volatile and a very expensive. uh, So we can get the heating
4: oil from Europe. (laughs)
3: Well, Yeah, that's (laughs) going to be uh, tricky, right? Because we're going to be trying to provide them with natural gas as well. But Stephen, to your point about refineries and capacities, given that there has been talk about releasing even more from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to lower gasoline prices, how much are we bumping up against the limits of refineries where even a release won't really make a difference in lowering prices further? And really, uh, we're kind of out of bullets.
2: Exactly. Well, we never had the bullets, Lisa. Uh, I mean, f- it, the doubling down on a policy that has failed it, it is stupidity on stilts. We have been trying to manipulate the price. We being the White House have been trying to manipulate the price of oil now for the past year. Over the last 52 weeks, we've dumped 200 million barrels of government owned crude oil onto the commercial market. And what do we have to show for that one year later? In New York, heating oil prices are $1. forty-six a gallon, higher, 30 percent higher than they were a year ago. So we can drain and we're just about there with the SPR. Over the last 52 weeks, we've drained a third of our emergency supply of oil. So what does that mean? A year ago, we had 42 days worth of supply of crude oil sitting in the SPR. Today we have 26 days left of capacity. That is the lowest level since 1983. Now, keep in mind, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is for emergencies. Imagine last week if Hurricane Ian did not go into Tampa, but instead went into Houston or New Orleans, i.e. the oil epicenter of North America. We simply are the least prepared ever for an emergency. And the only thing we have to show for that, Lisa, one year uh, uh, on is a 30 percent increase in distillate costs. So threatening uh, OPEC. With, oh, we're just going to put more oil. We're just going to do what hasn't worked over the 52 weeks. And we're going to do more of that. That is not a threat. OPEC is laughing this off right now.
6: Stephen, it's the strategic midterm reserve, according and, to a, a friend it of is. ours. OK, remember that. Stephen Shaw, of the Short Group. Thank
0: you, sir. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why nationwide makes simplicity a priority. By providing financial professionals with straightforward, client ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation member, FINRA,
1: Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card.
4: Neela Richardson, let's go there right now. Michael McKee, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate that this morning. Neela Richardson uh, with his chief economist at ADP. Uh, Neela, I want to cut to the chase and just simply say in the new emphasis on tomorrow's jobs report, what are you and ADP
7: focused on? Well, good morning. I can't think of a better way to start that conversation with wages. It's all about wages. It's about how wages are driving or not driving inflation. And that's what we're focused on. to be a microeconomist in a macro world, because when you are, you Mm -hmm. look at things as a collective decision makings from small to large firms. And what we're seeing is that timing has been a very important factor in the entire dynamics of the labor market. We are now starting to see more people, at least as according to the August report, entered the jobs market. And we saw a deceleration in wage gains growth for job changers. And I think that deceleration is notable. Right. And we saw it across all firm sizes because it means that switching jobs is not paying off quite as much as it okay. did this summer. What, and that might reduce some of the pressure in terms of inflation. What's the, char- and
4: ADP is wonderful at this. What's the character- of the job market differential out there right now? Is it airline pilots? Is it bartenders? Who is the job sector that matters to Neela Richardson right now?
7: Well, it all matters, Tom, but um I think what where we are different points of rebounding, right? So the service sector was hardest hit. And so when you look at leisure and hospitality, that's important. When you talk about inflation though, what's driving inflation is low pay, low wage, low skill jobs. And are we still going to see that bartender or that waitress, bartenders actually can make pretty good money. Let's go let's go <laughs> yes, lower skill. Um, are we going to see low skilled, low pay workers still see gains and acceleration in? At pay That didn't happen during the 10 years of expansion leading up to the pandemic. Well, we see it after we get over this hump of getting really back to normal when it comes to jobs and getting inflation down. Uh, that's the concern that low pay workers won't see the pay gains in the future that they saw over the last year and a half or so.
3: Neela, given that backdrop, I'd love you to comment on what Michael McKee was talking about, that there is this expectation that the unemployment rate will rise, but just marginal. Right. It might peak out at four and a half percent, still well below some of the peaks that we've seen in recent downturns. How quickly could that move away from the Fed based on what you're seeing in the micro data?
7: Well, let's start with the jolts, because I think that's important. That was a big number this week to see a million fewer job postings. We at ADP actually think that postings peaked this spring, so we weren't surprised to see that decline. Uh, So that's the first indicator. The second, this timing issue is really prevalent. If more people are coming back to the labor market because they want and need to work, and yet firms are slowing hiring, that's what's going to happen going to cause the unemployment rate to increase. That denominator is really important. It's not the number of jobs created every month so much. It's the number of people entering the labor market right at a time when firms may be slowing hiring. So I'm really focused on the denominator of the unemployment rate.
3: We're looking at this hoping that we still manage to get some sort of softish landing, but even Fed officials are really pulling back from that kind of language. Neela, from what you're looking at, what kind of downturn are we looking at based on some of the rate increases that are expected and based on the pace of weakening, the pace of loosening of this labor market?
7: I think you're going to see at different angles, Um Maybe you could call it a downturn by a variety of cuts as opposed to one big stab. Sorry to be graphic in the morning, but you're seeing interest rate sensitive sectors starting to feel some weakness in construction and manufacturing. Uh, if uh, we see uh inflation really hit pocketbooks and consumer spending, you might see consumer services uh, take a bit of a hit as well. And so all those gains in leisure and hospitality that we've been touting might slow. Uh, Professional business services are vulnerable for structural reasons. As fewer people go back into the office, um, that might change the complexion of like office support jobs. So the economy structurally is also changing at the same time that we might see some downturn dynamics driven by monetary policy, and tracing that all out is very difficult
6: to do. Neela, always love listening to you. Thanks for coming on the show with us. Neela Richardson of ADP.
4: This is a joy. CIBC uh, World Markets, Capital Markets, I should say, out of Toronto is a wonderful, wonderful shop. I think of Benjamin Tall and his great work. Bip and Rai joins us right now. Had a foreign exchange strategy there on Canada, but so much more on the time we live in, which is strong dollar and I want to talk about the x-axis of the belief that the dollar is going to weaken. Everyone's been wrong, wrong, wrong. Is your dollar study short-term or to go to the British medium-term or long-term? Where on the x-axis are you studying when the dollar breaks?
0: We're probably looking at the medium to long term. And if you want a specific gauge for how long to or at least a a way to calibrate that, I would say that potentially in the early to to mid part of next year is potentially when we'll start looking towards the next U.S. growth story, potentially leading to a softening of the dollar on a sustained basis.
4: Well, it's a softening of the dollar on the sustained basis. But the question is, what does EM do along the way? Are you partitioning now developed economies from EM or are they holistically the same against strong dollar?
0: No, so you have to partition them. I mean, if you look at the way EM has traded this year, it's been relatively robust compared to the dollar and at least compared to other DMs. I mean, most of the, the stronger dollar story has really been concentrated amongst the DM currencies, predominantly the, the traditional funders like the euro, and the yen, uh, and also now of late uh, against the sterling. I mean, we think that will migrate more towards a stronger dollar versus commodity currencies uh, backdrop as we move forward. And that's predominantly due to the imbalances that have been built up in some of these commodity currency economies, including here in Canada, and of course, Australia and New Zealand as well.
3: So over the past couple of months, and I really mean a couple, a month and a half perhaps, we've seen a little bit more stability enter the market. We haven't seen the same kind of runaway dollar strengthening, and we've seen a little bit more stasis at much lower levels uh, versus a dollar for the euro. Pound is its own story. How long do you expect to get this kind of stability as people game out what we already know, which is rate hikes on both sides of the Atlantic?
0: Yeah. So if we're talking about stability in the dollar, we really need to delineate uh, against what we expect the stability to come from. If we're talking about the broad dollar gauge, say the DXY, which of course is more tilted towards a, a greater weighting on the euro, then yeah, maybe the stability lasts a little bit longer because I do think that a lot of the, the sources of concern earlier, particularly with respect to energy security, you, you know what, they've been pushed a little bit further out. I don't want to say they're completely resolved, of course, because a lot of it now depends on how serious the demand situation will be. And for that, you you know, we need to really look at the weather reports uh, or at least see what the weather looks like and how cold it is in the eurozone for this winter. So for migrating away from this sort of, you know, concern that uh, the dollar is, is going to continue to appreciate against the euro and potentially the yen, of course, an intervention story there, you know, it, that doesn't mean that the dollar still can't appreciate against some of the other currencies. And, you know, I, I very much agree with, uh, you know, some of the other, uh, you know, Rhetoric that's been espoused by some of the other guests—that we're going to look at a higher for longer story, and not necessarily a scenario where central banks are entertaining cuts next year. If that's the case, then we got to look at where the the situations are fragile, and where you know the higher for longer story could potentially break things, and so that to me is 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 somewhat concerning, especially for Canada in Australia.
3: John, when do we just start to get a meteorologist on? I asked that, After didn't it. I? Yeah, exactly. We, we should. I mean, at what point is this going to determine the trajectory for the euro? I mean, let's say it's a cold winter, and what are we looking at in terms of what the euro dollar should should be?
0: Yeah, if it's a colder than expected winter I and mean, we see a you know, much more serious draw on natural gas supplies we're looking at potentially 90 cent euro dollar I think and maybe even uh, sustained momentum below there uh, that's when you start worrying about uh, whether or not uh, security risks or, or at least natural gas security is is enough uh, given what we have now I mean one of the key things that have really uh, driven uh, that's really driven the euro lower this year is the fact that the largest economy in Europe and of course Italy as well uh, both have had to reorient their, their energy story away from Russia and again that that's, that's a, st- a structural uh, change. That's not something that you could really uh, hope to address in one year or even two years.
6: Bip and Rai, thank you, sir, of CIBC Capital Markets.
4: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.
1: Take your business further with a smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card.